How do you know you're up to date? When you follow EMS World, you answer that question with confidence. Because when we say EMS World, we mean the whole world of EMS. The remaining question for you is how will you stay up to date? In print, online, at EMS World Expo, the world's largest EMS dedicated conference, and now in a podcast. Welcome to episode seven of our live from the Expo Floor podcast series. No surprise, but we have another amazing guest. Dr. Keith Lurie is all heart. I say that because he has dedicated his professional career to researching and developing cutting edge practices in in resuscitation of patients suffering cardiac arrest. He is an inventor, an electrophysiologist, and world-renowned expert who founded Advanced CPR Solutions in 2016. Doc, thanks for being here, and thanks for all you've done in progressing resuscitative efforts. Well, thank you so much for having me, Mike. So, Doc, let's talk about something that is exciting and encouraging within the pre-hospital setting, and that's heads-up CPR. I believe the data is very clear. When implemented correctly, heads-up CPR can absolutely improve neurologically intact survival rates after cardiac arrest. Maybe talk a little bit about the research that you've done personally over the years, and was this something that you saw coming down the line? So thanks for that question. Uh, first of all, I did not see it coming. Uh, in fact, I really didn't see what was going to happen in my career uh, starting back in 1988 when I attended a case at San Francisco General Hospital when I was a junior attending out there at UCSF. And uh, a patient had come in the night before who was resuscitated uh, with a toilet plunger on his chest. And uh, that we uh, laughed about, as you just have. And we realized that maybe we could activate the chest and push down and then pull up. And we wrote a little letter that was published in JAMA, CPR, the P stands for Plumber's Helper. Made it to the first night of the Jay Leno Show, why do plumbers make as much as cardiologists? And, and the story went around the world. And before we knew it, we were studying active compression and then active decompression of the chest. But and what year was this? This was over 30 years ago. Oh my word. So this has been a, uh, a lifelong passion. I am a cardiologist, an electrophysiologist, but this really grabbed hold of me when we started seeing success. And we really started seeing success when we combined this plunger-like device with a little valve that we developed at the University of Minnesota that when you pull up on the chest actually blocked air transiently from rushing into the lungs. And that combination of active compression, decompression, I'm going to call it ACD for this podcast, and the impedance threshold device, or ITD, that combination in pigs tripled blood flow to the heart and the brain compared to a pair of hands. So we saw that, and we also saw that in humans, people were waking up with this combination during CPR. And one man who woke up with this combination during CPR is a man named Steve Dunn, who is a professor at the School of Business at the University of Wisconsin. And he was getting this combination of ACD plus ITD CPR as part of a clinical trial back in 2007. He went into cardiac arrest, got treated with this device combination by the uh, first responders, and he turned to them and said, you can stop doing CPR now. He's still in VF. He had such good blood flow to his brain. He has subsequently become the executive director of an organization called Take Heart America. That organization, uh, you know, Take Heart America, www.takeheartamerica, is where you can go to find out a lot more information about this whole 
a system of care which we now call neuroprotective CPR. Why neuroprotective CPR? Because it takes CPR and we've upgraded it both literally and figuratively by not only having this ACDITD, but then with the discovery that gradual controlled sequential elevation of the head and thorax together with active compression, decompression CPR with the impedance threshold device actually can result in normal cerebral perfusion pressure in pigs, markedly higher survival rate in pigs, and then most recently as presented here, actually some of the data for the first time at EMS World demonstration that timely rapid application of neuroprotective CPR results in improved outcomes compared to prospective historical controls that were very well matched. And during the session that we just had here live, one of the survivors, the fire chief of Richfield, Minnesota, explained why he implemented this whole neuroprotective strategy and how he did it so that the firefighters, is fundamental, the firefighters are key, first-in responders are key to the success of this. They can carry all this just like they carry an AED. As my colleague, Dr. Paul Pepe says, neuroprotective CPR, is for the non-shockable rhythms what AED is for the shockable rhythms. You put it on rapidly, it's pretty amazing. That's interesting stuff, and, and I think the term neuro, uh, neuroprotected is very interesting in this as well because we historically had spoken about ROSC and everything else, but unless you're neurologically intact, then really, w where are we going, right? So the question with that is, what have we been doing wrong for so many years? And I don't, I don't say that, that we were doing it intentionally, but what were we doing with CPR? What guidelines were we following? And why was it that way for so long without recognizing something like this? Well, let's start off with the, sort of a 30,000 foot picture. Uh, cardiac arrest, sudden cardiac arrest is the number one killer of adults in the United States, Europe, and other industrialized countries until COVID. And now as of this moment today, it remains the number one cause of death. And while conventional manual CPR, as we all learned, in medical school, paramedic school, EMT school, you learn it now in high school. It works, but it doesn't provide enough circulation to the heart and the brain because from a sort of, a, how do we develop as humans? We have a beating heart, and how do you get blood flow to move forward when you're pushing on somebody's chest? It can only push so much. You can only get about 25 or 30%. So the development of this combination of devices to improve circulation was a huge step forward. It turns out when you do CPR in the flat position, it's really hard for blood to get out of the brain. So you push down on the chest, you deliver some blood to the brain. But at the same time, the right side of pressures on the venous side, they go sky high. So you have these two wave pressure waves, one on the right, one on the left, and, and, and you're pushing down on the brain with each compression. And then how does the blood get back from the brain? It's very hard. But the discovery of elevating the head sequentially and in a controlled way, for the first time took advantage of gravity. So we harnessed gravity. So it's not like we were doing something wrong, we just didn't know how to make it better. Now, it's just like, it was discovered many years ago that people were hyperventilating patients, so we had to slow that down. People were pushing on the chest and not allowing the chest to fully recoil. We had to correct that. So this is another discovery, but for the first time, we really augment blood flow to the brain. By getting rid of the venous blood, lowering intracranial pressure, and all that blood actually comes back to the heart to preload the heart, so you actually increase circulation quite strikingly. We've recently been doing a series of studies in pigs where we look at what's the impact just in a beating living pig of going from flat to head up. 
and you dump a whole bunch of blood from the brain back to the heart and increase stroke volume and increase cardiac output. So we learn from the living and now apply that approach as well to patients who need an, a, a CPR. And it's so interesting, right? Because it was such a simple maneuver. Just elevate the head and you had this much of a difference, which is pretty incredible. You spoke a little bit about the ACD. If you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about the ITD and what that is and how that plays such an integral role in outcome. Right, so those two devices are used uh, synergistically. In fact, this whole system is synergistic. So if you start out with conventional standard CPR, when you allow the chest to recoil, air rushes back into the lungs, and that negates the little vacuum that would normally draw more blood back into the heart. But we need a vacuum inside the thorax to create more blood to come back to the heart. When we take a deep breath in, we create a vacuum, we suck more blood back into the heart as well as air into the lungs. What the ITD does is it actually, it's like putting your thumb over the endotracheal tube during the recoil phase of CPR only. So air can't rush into the lungs, and so when the chest recoils either actively or passively, there's a greater vacuum inside the thorax that literally sucks blood back into the heart and sucks venous blood out of the brain. It's no different than, I live in Minnesota, we've got a lot of lakes, we've got these hand pumps by the lakes, and when you pump water from one of these hand pumps, it effectively is like active compression, decompression, and there's a little valve in there so that you can create a vacuum to draw water from down, way under, up so you can drink it. The same thing is true of the ITD. So you harness the vacuum created by the recoil, either passively or active of the chest, with this little device. Very interesting. And so this is kind of all part of that bundle concept, right, is, is what we're adopting this as in the pre-hospital world. This bundle approach is something that you're starting to see a lot more EMS agencies uh, put into practice and, you know, buy into. But like you said, this all has to happen synergistically. Having one of these uh, items is not going to get you the benefit. This has to be a whole process, correct? Correct. So you asked me, you know, what we were doing wrong. What we hadn't realized was the opportunity. We were focusing correctly on high quality CPR. We were focusing correctly on dispatcher assisted, no, no, go, start chest compressions right away. We were focusing correctly on, after you have a return of spontaneous circulation, getting somebody to a resuscitation center, cooling them down, opening up their coronaries, giving them great care. But during the actual practice of CPR itself, nothing has really changed for 60 years. We're still using a pair of hands. Now think about all the tools that have developed. Now you just can't throw these tools willy-nilly. You have to implement them just like you would when you're putting out a fire, just like you would when you're flying a jet plane. You have to do it in a well-organized pit crew approach. And then you start to see some physiologic magic. And that physiologic magic means you're correcting the problem of high intracranial pressure that you get when you just put down on the chest. You're correcting the problem of poor blood flow to the brain when you just push down on the chest, and you're suddenly providing the opportunity for normal physiology with this so-called bundle, or now we call neuroprotective CPR, a term coined by a 50-year-old ex-EMT who lay in the hospital after getting 24 minutes of CPR in St. John's County on May 19th this year, and Jason Benjamin said to himself, why am I alive? I should be dead. I've been harvesting lungs at my new job for the last 15 years, lungs for transplant, 
and I harvest these lungs from people who get five or 10 minutes of CPR, I am thinking completely normally, and I just had a cardiac arrest. After 24 minutes of CPR, what the heck's going on? He went back to talk to Dr. Kerry Bachista, who's the EMS medical director for St. John's County, Florida, who had implemented this entire so-called bundle of care. And he writes to us and he says, you can't call it a bundle anymore. You gotta give it a better name. How about neuroprotective CPR? And so that is what we're calling this pretty amazing synergistic technology put into high-performance systems. So I think it's great, and like you just said, put into high-performance systems. Now, we realize that this is the best way to achieve neurologically intact ROS, right? So we, it, the data's there. The question is, is this best practice or is this something that should be regulated to the point where this just becomes standard practice and not best practice? And the reason why I ask that is because it's very, it, it, it gets a little bit crazy because of the cost factor, right? Just like everything in EMS, is it cost prohibitive for some agencies to implement these adjuncts? So that is, like anything else in medicine, always been raised as a potential objection. When uh, Dr. David Miramontes, who's the EMS medical director uh, for San Antonio and is a colleague, uh, heard the most recent data, he said, this is revolutionary because it needs to be applied by first-in responders. And then he started thinking about all of the devices he would need for San Antonio. And then he stepped back and thought, well, how much am I spending now for fire engines, for firefighters, for drugs, for all the other devices? And they have most of the other devices in their system. And he said, and if I'm only getting six, 8% neurologically intact survival, and if I can apply this entire neuroprotective CPR strategy more rapidly, how many more lives will I save? It's a no-brainer, pardon the pun, if you amortize all this stuff out over four years, five years, which you can do, just like leasing a car, it dramatically reduces the, the cost factor, which is real. Don't let me negate that. But you start prioritizing. Do you want to go and continuously do CPR on people who you have to say, I'm so sorry, but you know, we did everything and your loved one didn't, your loved one didn't live. And in the back of your mind, you know you didn't do everything, and you wonder whether there can be a difference. And that's why we're here today, to share that opportunity. So I don't think we're ready to have anything mandated. First of all, we don't like that. No. <laughs> We've learned that. But what we can do is we can provide the opportunity for first responder systems, EMS systems across the country, across the world, to realize that there has been an upgrade, and that upgrade is neuroprotective CPR. Dr. Keith Lurie, it certainly has been a pleasure, and I know that this time has just flown by, but I will tell you, I would love to stay on with you and talk to you about this for probably about another hour and a half, but we just don't have that time. But I do want to thank you for coming on and speaking about this significant change in CPR administration. Doc, is there, an, is there any other areas where the listener can go to learn a little bit more about this? I know that you cited one site, but is there somewhere else that they can go to get more information about Heads Up CPR and the practices and the data that, that are out there now? Right, so the uh, Take Heart America site is one site. The Advanced CPR Solutions site, the company that makes the Eligard that I co-founded uh, is another site. And then uh, there's also going to be, uh, like this podcast, is going to be an educational a program that Prodigy EMS is putting on that really talks about all of the advances in resuscitation, similar to what we're doing here, right. uh, 
and that's going to be launched October 2021. You can get CE credit for it, and uh, I think combined there are resources there are resources out there. The, the people who have been the movers and shakers in this neuroprotective CPR space include Dr. Joanna Moore, who's at uh, Hennepin County Medical Center in Minneapolis, Paul Pepe, uh, who is one of the sort of co-directors of the Eagles, Ken Shepke, uh, also medical director of uh, Florida, Joe Holly, uh, EMS medical director for Tennessee. These are some of the, some, not all, but some of the individuals who have really been strong proponents. And then in Europe, uh, Dr. Guillaume de Batte, who's the EMS medical director for Grenoble and the chief there. If you look up their names, if you uh, go to the sites that uh, they, they have as well, you can learn more about this. Well, I certainly would encourage everybody to do that. And Doc, again, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for coming on. Mike, thanks so much for this opportunity. And have a great day. You too. And thanks for listening to Episode 7, live from the Expo floor. Stay tuned as we're rolling out 13 episodes during this series. I'm your host, Mike McCabe. Thanks for tuning in. This has been an episode of EMS World Podcast. You can find this audio and more like it on the podcast page of emsworld.com. You can also follow EMS World on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. 